to an incredibly special bonus episode of the Anagram Journey podcast. In July of 2019, we released a podcast episode that was the first hour of the spiritual practices in the Anagram workshop with Joe and Suzanne. If you haven't listened to that one yet, uh, you can find it. It is episode 62 of the Anagram Journey. That has far and away been one of you, the listener's favorite episodes. So we decided to do it again, and this time with the introduction to Grieving in the Enneagram, a workshop that Suzanne and Joe uh, put on recently in 2021. You can find the entire workshop at lifeinthetrinityministry.com or at suzannestabile.com. And now I will send it on over to Suzanne. Thank you, everybody, from everywhere for joining us. I'm going to teach a while, then we'll take a break, then I'll teach a while, then we'll take a break and go home, and then we'll do the same thing again tomorrow. I believe that we're talking about something these two days that isn't talked about enough. I think it's one of those things that is assumed One of the complaints I've always had with the church is that they keep telling us to pray, but they just teach us one prayer. And, you know, after a while, that gets old. That's if you're uh, uh, not Catholic. They teach you several, but they get old, too. I've done both, so I get to say that. And I I think uh, this illusion that we're all grieving when there's loss is just wrong. We aren't grieving, and I think we aren't grieving because we don't know how to grieve. And I think we don't know how to grieve because everybody assumed that it was some natural thing that people do. And I can remember, like, I don't know, throughout the years in my family or when people close to us died, other people would say this line, I'm not sure he's really grieved yet. He hasn't cried as if that was the ticket, you know. So then the opposite of that was also assumed, and the opposite was, well, she's been crying a lot. I think she's about through it, so we need to make sure she kind of gets back out there. Or people say stupid stuff. And, And when I mean, when I say stupid, I mean really stupid. Like, uh, we had a woman in a church that we served a long time ago, but we were there nine years, and her husband unexpectedly had a heart attack and died, and she was left to raise three children. And she didn't really have the money to do that. She didn't know what she was going to do, and he had been really great at working with the Boy Scouts. And somebody walked up to her at his funeral and said, I hope you're not sad because there are so many Boy Scouts in heaven who need him. Ugh, that makes me want to throw up. So the only thing I can tell you about that is that that is not better than saying nothing. And that's another thing we're not good at because there's only one Enneagram number that's really good at bearing witness to pain, and that's fours. And fours can be fully present and not saying anything. I process verbally. So as a two, if I'm not saying anything, then it means that I've been given a lecture before the time telling me that I can't, or it means I'm trying to stay in my place, 
I uh, was one of the speakers for a big virtual women's retreat last week, and then they did a Q&A, and people who represented the church asked the questions, and there were four women speakers on screens answering the questions. And it was clear to me, we didn't have really great directions ahead of time, but it was clear to me that there were times when I was supposed to talk and times when I was not supposed to talk. But the other women kept talking about things I said, which felt like they wanted me to respond. So I had to put this in the dryer today to get the wrinkles out because in order to keep my mouth shut during that time, this was all squeezed like this. It's like I wanted to talk so bad. And be clear, I had something relevant to say. And it wasn't the appropriate thing for me to do, right? So then that opens a whole new set of doors for us about, okay, what's appropriate when somebody dies? And what are you supposed to say? And when are you supposed to say it? And who are you supposed to say it to? And all the jazz, all of it. I, in some ways think this is right at the top of work that I've done in relationship to the Enneagram and something else that could end up being pretty helpful because we all know that there are some things in life where you don't get do-overs and grieving is one of them. So you're going to hear me talk a lot tonight and tomorrow night about grieving in real time. And I, I'm not putting that on you as if you don't get it done in real time, then it doesn't count, because that wouldn't be fair, and I don't know that any of us can do that well. But I think the goal for all of us needs to be grieving in real time, because every step away from real time and real events and real happenings means that your memory is even more unique than the memories of other people who were there. And it also means that you have either added a bunch of negative stuff or maybe reframed a bunch of negative stuff that changes the whole thing. So it always comes back to, it seems to me that whenever I stand up to teach the Enneagram and something, it always comes back to awareness. How capable are you of being present to what's happening right now? And how capable are you of observing yourself non-judgmentally so that when you can't read yourself from within, you can read what you're observing by kind of hovering up here and watching yourself? And I think more often than not, when we're watching ourselves, that's uh, generally the most authentic we are. The other stuff we've planned for, right? So we don't need to observe because we planned what we were going to do or how we were going to handle all that. So in grieving, certainly you get a chance to um, experience grief in whatever way life offers you. But if you don't have some tools to work with so that you can be aware of what's 
happening, then I suspect most of us get lost in either following somebody else's behavior, which might not have been ours, or sitting back and not saying what we want to say or offering what we have to offer, or um, trying to make everybody else comfortable so that we don't have to deal with our own feelings and our own needs. Like There's a lot of ways to avoid feeling your feelings as things are unfolding. And I think that culturally we have come to a time where our expectation, the expectation is that everybody's going to behave. I'm going to tell you right now, if that man dies before me, I won't be behaving. He is my every other breath. I don't know any other way to describe it. He's my every other heartbeat. I don't know why we get to be together, but we've been together a long time, and it's really good. And I don't think, if God is truly wise, I will die first. Because he can handle it easier than me. And I'm not going to behave. I'm not going to behave. I'm going to feel what I feel. If it seems awkward that I think we can learn to grieve, then it's going to have to be awkward because I think we are um, set up to respond to loss in a certain way. And I don't think it was ever intentional. And I think we all suffer from human respect. And I think we all want to do the right, good, and honoring thing. So, you know, there are people who have said to me, I'm so afraid that I'll just be a mess at the funeral and people will think I don't believe in heaven. And, you know, my response to that is, oh, honey, no, people, people aren't going to think that. And then they look back at me and say, yeah, they are. And I said, oh, oh okay. Uh, I've had people say to me, uh, I hope nobody talks to me because I'm afraid I'll cry. Well, you get to cry, for goodness sakes. Why, why wouldn't you cry? I think people like me fill empty space with conversation because they don't know what else to do and they want to be helpful. So let me give you an example. Um, years ago, a really lovely young family in the church that Joe was pastoring, uh, had a, a very interesting relationship with us because he was Catholic and she was Methodist. And they went to Mass every Saturday and came to the Methodist church every Sunday. And so, of course, they loved Joe and he loved having somebody who was previously Catholic sitting in the congregation. And um, they had two boys and their youngest baby uh, all of a sudden was in the hospital, and his brain stem was dying. So that meant that he was going to live for maybe two days, maybe three. So we pack up, and we're at the hospital with these people that we love. And uh, somebody from the hospital staff comes in to get Joe and says, 
do you want to be the person to go in with our representative to talk about whether or not they want to donate Colin's organs? Joe said, I absolutely do. So uh, he stood up and he, whoever it was said, you can come too. So I stand up and go with him. And we get in one of those little tiny rooms in hospitals that are very poorly designed for hearing the worst information you're going to hear in your life or making the biggest decisions you can imagine making. You know, you walk in and there's usually four chairs and a box of Kleenex on a table. We can do better, surely, surely. But you know why we don't do better? Because we don't know better about grieving. So we walk in, and we're in that room for like an hour and a half. And Joe comes and goes, and the parents step out with Joe, and then they step back in, and I'm just me. And here's what I did. They were all in the room at one time, and it was total silence. And I'd already said, I love you. And we had all already cried, and it just got... The silence got louder and louder and louder, and I sure did say, um, can I get anybody something to eat? I imagine my face just started turning brown. I'm still embarrassed by such an inadequate response to such an incredible moment. The only reason I'm telling you that is that when we don't know what to do, we want to do the thing that we do know we could do, because of love, not stupidity, but it is ignorant, right? And so I think we're going to have to be models for everybody else. So Joel tells me we have over 300 people. They're from 47 states and seven countries. So my challenge to you to take away from tonight and tomorrow what you learn and what we can share together is be a model for grieving. And you'll have to practice. And once you decide to be a model for grieving, then you will be the people who can set the table for other people to grieve. I have heard Joe uh, officiate at I don't know how many funerals. I died, I have no idea how many. Hundreds and hundreds. And he frequently uses this line. Life has not ended, but merely changed. And here's what I've come to believe. If we don't grieve through the transition, then we can't live into believing in the change. I um, think totems matter. Replacements don't exist. That there is no replacement for loss. So you have to have loss and the replacement. (laughs) But you, you can't name it a replacement. It's a new person that's added to the whole picture. And nobody can take anybody else's place. And... Perhaps the beginning of healthy grieving is telling the stories over and over and over about the loss that you're experiencing. I'm beginning to take people back to square one and define the Enneagram and define what I'm talking about so that we're all operating from a place of we all know that these are the two things we're talking about. 
The Enneagram has been defined as a powerful tool for personal and collective transformation. It stems from the Greek word with ania, which means nine, and gramos, which means symbol. And the nine-pointed Enneagram represents nine distinct strategies for relating to self and others and the world. Now, here's why that's so important. Your strategy isn't going to be mine. And you can't judge other people's experience of life based on how you would respond. And after we get past nine Enneagram numbers, then we have whether or not you're an introvert or an extrovert. And then we have life experience. And then we have how many tools you have to do life and do it well, or how how hard you're trying to learn to do it differently. And then we have subtypes, whether or not you're social or sexual or self-preserving. Like, there's so much going on that to expect that other people are you is ludicrous. I don't think I use that word very often because I didn't know how to spell it. So evidently I don't. All right, grieving is defined as a stronger word than mourning. And grieving, grieve, is a stronger word than grief. And it implies deep mental suffering, often endured alone and in silence, but revealed by one's nature. Mourning, on the other hand, usually refers to manifesting your sorrow outwardly. So that is uh, mourning either with sincerity or without sincerity based on your personal feelings and expectations. As you probably have heard many times, Joe is Italian. He's also half German, but he doesn't ever tell anybody that. Like, he loves just being Italian. (laughs) And um, his Italian grandmother, his Italian grandfather died young. And his Italian grandmother wore black for the rest of her life. So that's just right there. Just one generation removed from outward expression of mourning. And she didn't leave her house except to go to Mass. That's some serious mourning right there. And so I, I want, I'm, I'm laying all of this out. I'm trying to make your, your idea of what we're going to do bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger because there's this much to talk about. And then there's more than that, and we won't get to that. Synchronicity plays a big role in my life, and it always has. And I guess, looking back, Joe and I would say that it has determined what I've taught. Teaching the Enneagram just as the Enneagram was really great for five years, but I got 25 more years in now, and I wanted to do the Enneagram and, because if I can't apply it to other things, then it has a pretty short shelf life, right? And I uh, was going through a particularly unusual time for my life when I discerned that the next thing I should work on was Enneagram and Grieving. 
And um, I'm going to add to that only this, that I think that's how the Holy Spirit calls me, is what are you going to do with this life experience? And now what are you going to do with this life experience? The year that I started studying grieving uh, was 2015, 14 and 15. And um, I started because a young man that I had helped raise in those two years, in those two years, a young man that I had helped raise died at the age of 41. My ex-husband died. My brother-in-law died. My sister-in-law died. My brother, Carol, died. And one of my nephews died. But of even greater significance to me, during that time, three men who are living, who I love deeply, all of whom are sevens on the Enneagram, experienced enormous, overwhelming, life-altering sadness or depression. And I was one of many people who were in, was who was, I was one who was involved in uh, caring for them in some ways. And it was on me to be present to their pain. And um, I was aware and present to their pain when they knew it. And I was present to their pain when they didn't. And it was through that presence that I knew that I needed to embrace a time of teaching about grieving. If you're not aware, it's a very tricky topic. It's complex in more ways than I would have ever imagined. And uh, culturally, we have not been encouraged to grieve. There are cultures that do encourage grieving and that know how to do it way better than we do. And I think your interest in reading what they've learned will probably be piqued by the time we finish the weekend. Um, many of the people who want to participate in this workshop are pastors or chaplains or Stephen ministers. And they are the people who are trained to be with us while we're grieving. But we're not much to be with and we don't need much because we don't know how to grieve. I think it is true that when intuitive grieving starts to rise to the top, depending on your Enneagram number. You choose to allow it or you choose not to. So we're going to work on that. And in my months of reading and preparing, I slowly came to the realization that I would have to talk about grieving before I could talk about grieving in relationship to the Enneagram. I'm now convinced unexpectedly that emotions and feelings are critically important to our individual and collective ways of being. My journal from all the notes that I took when I was beginning to learn about grieving says this. 9-11 was in 2001. It went on to say, my journal, I was 50 and now I'm 64, but now I'm 70, just so you know I'm there. And at that time, 9-11 time, my oldest daughter was 23, and my second oldest daughter was 20, and Joel was 17, and our youngest son was 
13. And we were devastated, and the children were changed. And now, only 14-plus years later, it's my contention that uh, we have grown, had grown, increasingly numb to devastation. I think we all thought it would never happen again. Nothing like that would ever happen again. And I don't know how many people were able to grieve 9-11 well. And now we have not 9-11, but 2-6. And um, it's devastating. And we still don't know how to grieve, and so we're behaving badly. And I think if the collective behaves badly when we don't know how to grieve, then we can expect that there are individuals who are going to behave badly when they don't know how to grieve. And I think there's a way to make room for that. But if you don't address it, then the people who don't know how to grieve who behave badly keep other people from grieving. So that's not okay. This is tricky, tricky stuff. This isn't one of those weekends where you're going to walk away and say, got it, because I I can't get you there. But I can give you what I have. Grief and terror and despair around the world affect all of us. Whether or not we name it and whether or not we dwell on it, we're all affected by it. And the mounting violence and tragedy in our everyday lives has forever changed our sense of safety, and it has eroded our confidence in the world. And there are authors who are saying that, in fact, we have experienced so much that we didn't grieve that we are emotionally illiterate. The problem is not that we can't subdue or control negative emotions, even though that's a fact and we can't. The problem is that we can't authentically feel negative emotions. We somehow have all these ways of blocking that. So grief and fear and despair are basic emotions that are part of everyday life, and they are an inevitable part of everyday life. Surely there are many other emotions. I'm talking right now, just right now, about grief and fear and despair. And my study and my reading suggests that our inability to bear these three is the source of many of our individual and collective problems. So if you've heard me teach much, you've heard me talk about Miriam Greenspan. And she wrote a book, the title of which is Healing Through the Dark Emotions. And it's one of, I don't know, 500 books that changed my life. You know how you say, oh, that book changed my life? This one did change mine. And it changed how I see things. And while my task this weekend is to address grief, I do want to share something with you that she said about these three before we move on. She said, suppressed grief often turns into depression, anxiety, or addiction. 
suppressed grief often turns into depression, anxiety, or addiction. And then she said, benumbed fear can easily lead to irrational prejudice, toxic rage, and acts of violence. Isn't that something? Benumbed fear can easily lead to irrational prejudice, toxic rage, and acts of violence. And, she said, overwhelming or unconscious despair is also a core ingredient of the increasing incidence of chronic depression worldwide. She continues, the inability to tolerate grief, fear, and despair, as most any psychotherapist knows, is a major feature of the epidemic of addictions to alcohol, drugs, technology, entertainment, work, sex, etc., that afflict our civilization. In short, aborted grief and fear and despair are at the root of the characteristic psychological disorders of our time, depression, anxiety, addiction, irrational violence, and psychic numbing. And my friends, those realities are playing themselves out everywhere. Everywhere you look, you will find this. And they're destructive on the world stage and in our individual psyches. Our oldest, Joey, was 23 on 9-11. And she called us. Joe answered the phone. She was crying, and she said, Daddy, why does the world hate us? There are no negative emotions. There are just unskillful ways of coping with the emotions that we can't bear. And we all cope with them differently. Sometimes you live life forward and you understand it looking backwards. That's Kierkegaard, you know. I'm quoting Kierkegaard today. <laughs> That's the one Kierkegaard quote I have to offer you. But Ambiguous Loss by Pauline Boss. Ay, yai, yai, this is important. <laughs> really important. If you came to boot camp, then you may remember that Andy Stoker talked a lot when he was teaching family systems about the work of Pauline Boss. And, you know, he kind of offhandedly said, you might want to read this book. And so I've learned to order them right then. And um, it's been a game changer for me. So I'm going to share with you some of my thoughts mixed in with a lot of Pauline bosses so that we can get straight about uh, loss and all the things that need to be addressed in relationship to grieving. Ambiguous loss by definition is incomplete or uncertain loss. Perhaps there's more grieving within and around family than there is anywhere else in our lives. That's been my experience. Uh, I think that's the experience of a lot of people, but I don't think that fits everybody. I'm just saying I'm going to start with family stuff because that's a, 
uh, usually a place that we can all stand on the same ground and start to look at. And uh, I want to say all along until I get there that grieving a loss is way more than somebody dying. And we've done a terrible job in the West of grieving. And then on top of that, we've done a terrible, terrible job of being honest and forthcoming about all the things that require grieving. And so I I'm, I'm want you to kind of move whatever your blinders are about all of that out just a little. I'm going to fill it, and then you can move them again, and I'll fill it again. Boss describes family as an intimate group of people whom we can count on over time for comfort, care, nurturance, support, sustenance, and emotional closeness. I'll say it again because I'm a copious note taker, and I know that was too fast, and I, I would want it. An intimate group of people whom we can count on over time for comfort, care, nurturance, support, sustenance, and emotional closeness. Listen to this now. Family can be people with whom we grew up, It can be people that we were with that we've called our family of origin, or it can be people we select in adulthood that we call family of choice. The latter, family of choice, might include biological or non-biological offspring or no offspring at all. And instead, we might be referred to as an aunt or an uncle to a relative's or friend's children or step-parents to a partner's child. Here's the deal. This view of family stresses that the criteria is being present psychologically and physically even more than that of being biologically related. But it's hard to be clear about family. So um, here's a little, a, a little uh, trip down memory lane for Joe and me, and you can see how complicated it gets and how quickly it gets that way. So Joe's family that he was biologically connected to, physically and psychologically, uh, took a big hit when he was 14 because he left home at 14 and went away to high school seminary. He was home the next three summers for a couple of months each summer, and then he wasn't home for nine years. And the Vincentian fathers became his family, psychologically and physically, until he was 40. And he was still connected to his biological family, but they weren't with him, and he wasn't connected to them psychologically and physically. Everybody got that? All right. And there's loss and grief associated with the reality that when he decided to leave the Vincentian fathers at 40 and therefore leaving the priesthood, he was rejected by both families, not physically or psychologically connected to either one, 
but he was physically and psychologically connected to me. Now, here's how I got to 40. Uh, I was and am biologically disconnected. I was adopted at birth. Uh, I had one phone conversation with my birth mother. She told me to never contact her again. And so adopted at birth into a family with a mom and a dad and two brothers, and they became my family psychologically and physically. I started a family then of my own. That's the way we've kind of always talked about. And, you know, we went off to start a family of our own. Start a family of my own, but as is true for so many adopted females, I was so anxious to have children, I married the wrong person and had children. We divorced, but the thing that I had to grieve when we we divorced was not the divorce, because that was a good thing for everybody. The thing I had to grieve was that he was so absent that in the divorce there was nothing to miss. You see, the trouble was not the divorce per se, and so if people wanted to grieve that with me, because of some understanding in the world of divorce, then that's not helpful because that's not what was happening to me. They would have had to have grieved with me the 12 years that I was married, but not at the divorce. See that? So you don't get to just make up stuff out here about what people need you to be sensitive to or to grieve with them because you could sure be on the wrong train when you do that. Um, For our family, it was a good thing. But we were able to make it a good thing because we were very honest and we were very intentional with our children and with other people in addressing the ambiguity and unresolved loss that was part of all of that. Then we became a couple with our family. The Catholic Church divorced both of us grieving. Joe's family of origin and the Vincentians didn't want him to marry me. We were grieving. Joe adopted the three children. They were grieving in their own way because they were available for adoption when their biological father lived close by. We then were pregnant with twins. We lost one of the twins during the pregnancy, grieving. Joe had trouble finding a job, grieving. The United Methodist Church invited him in, but our first appointment, we had a terrible church antagonist, grieving. During all that time, my dad died, my mom died, Joe's dad died, Joe's mom died. Those are not ambiguous losses. That's ordinary loss. And everybody rallies around ordinary loss. People don't know what to do with ambiguous loss. So they judge it or they make up stories about it that aren't true, or they judge you. And right after my mother died, I got a letter from my brother that said, I don't ever want to see you again. But there was not reason given, so that's ambiguous loss. Shortly after that, my other brother died. So I had nobody with whom to share my history. Nobody shared my history with me that was in my life, right? Ambiguous loss. We've served churches and had to leave behind people we loved when we were appointed to a new church. Ambiguous loss. 
Our kids left home, ambiguous laws, right? So there's all of this grieving that's going on, but it's not all for the same kind of loss. And because it isn't for the same kind of loss, which is the big one, and we're not good at that, then we're not good at any of it, and all this gets ignored. It's like some part of life that's supposed to happen. Okay, that doesn't mean it doesn't have loss associated with that. Boss says, even if loss is ambiguous, grieving is necessary. So then that's confusing, right? Of all the losses experienced in personal relationships, ambiguous loss is the most devastating because it remains unclear and indeterminate. There are two types of ambiguous loss. Here's the first type. People are perceived by family members as physically absent but psychologically present because it's unclear whether they're dead or alive. I am 70, so that means I was 16, 17, 18, 19 during the Vietnam War. I grew up in a town of 5,000 people. Uh, None of my friends, really, few, very few of my friends thought they were going to go away to college and become something else because they were living on farms and ranches with their families, and the plan was they were going to ranch and farm, and that's what they wanted to do. But my generation happened to be the first where family farms couldn't support three generations. They could only support two. So increased lifespan meant that my generation had to figure out something else to do. And when that became a reality, lots of my friends went to Vietnam. And lots of my friends didn't come home. That's ambiguous loss. There's no closure for some of that. I was coaching at Bishop Lynch High School in my college years before I was coaching there full-time. And um, in, in that time period, there were silver bracelets that were being made by some organization that had the name and date of a soldier who was MIA. And you could buy those. And I had a young woman, a girl, who played three sports for me, and her brother was MIA. And Carolyn and I wore her brother's bracelet for years and years and years. And um, it's been 10 years since I had a short exchange with her And I told her that I had run across that bracelet in my things. And she said uh, uh, something uh, like, oh, they just found his body. That's a whole long time of, is he alive? Is he dead? Is he coming home? Where is he? That's ambiguous loss. And that's grieving that people don't know what to do with, right? We don't even know what to do with the kind of loss that we think we're supposed to know how to deal with. So here we go. Ambiguous lost, first type, physically absent, is missing soldiers, kidnapped children. That is in catastrophic form, ambiguous loss. But everyday occurrences are included ambiguous loss too. And so that includes divorce, 
adoptive families, where a parent or a child is viewed as absent or missing, that's ambiguous loss. Now, you know that what we do generally without some tools is when children tell us that they're hurting or when they try to tell us that they're grieving, we are patronizing rather than inviting. And you know why? Because we don't know how to grieve. So we, we don't have any space for that because we don't know how to grieve, so we don't know what to do with that. All right, the second type. This is when the person is perceived as physically present, but psychologically absent. That's illustrated in the extreme by people who have Alzheimer's or addictions or chronic mental illness. But it can also occur when a person experiences serious head trauma You know, you've heard stories about people who have serious head trauma and they're in a coma and then they come out of the coma, but they're not who they used to be. In everyday situations, we have people who are excessively preoccupied with their work. So they're psychologically absent from home, but they physically come home. And and what I wonder what, I wonder what it's been like during this time for people who are physically at home but not psychologically available to other people because they're doing the things that they normally do somewhere else, right? We're going to come out of this a mess, and I don't think we're going to necessarily be prepared to address that. I'm big on ritual. I have a lot of them. Joe and I have a lot of them. Um, Let me give you a few examples. Um, Joe has the same prayer book he got when he was 14. Um, The ribbons, I wanted to replace them. He said, no, 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 no. Like it is. It looks like somebody who's been praying since he was 14. My same prayer book, you know, I don't like the Psalms, and I don't, ah, I don't know what ribbon to turn. It's not my favorite thing, but I do it with Joe every once in a while because I want to be with Joe. My, my prayer book doesn't look like that. <laughs> Jenny, our daughter Jenny, gave me um, stones with everybody that we treasure's name on them. And then I added to that, and we have stones that have all the fruits of the Spirit and we have two with self-control because I need that one a lot. And we have uh, stones that say other things, uh, lots of them. And I have these nine candles that are tiered, and we pray with those candles and those stones literally every day of our life. And somehow there's something happening with those because our children will call and say, I need you to light a candle. Need you to light a candle. Need you to light a candle. And I'll go home from the grocery store if they need me to light a candle. It's like, I'm, I, leave my basket here. I'll be back. i got to go light a candle. So that's ritual that really works for our family. I don't know what will work for you. But we need ritual, and we don't have enough. And the existence of rituals to mark ambiguous losses is an indicator 
of a culture's tolerance for ambiguity. So I'm going to say that again. The existence of rituals to mark ambiguous loss is an indicator of a culture's tolerance for ambiguity. You know what that means. We don't have many because we are not a culture that does well with ambiguity. We like certainty. There are a few greeting cards now that are available that express support for people who are going through a breakup of some kind. Hospitals have begun to recognize miscarriages and infant death as real losses that warrant grieving. Joe and I, uh, each of our mothers had a miscarriage, and neither one of them ever talked about it. It's like that used to be a thing that you just don't talk about. Earlier, I, I talked to you about there are no replacements. One of Joe's really good friends, uh, priest, former priest friends, but they did a lot together in uh, theology school, and he was home and went out into the garage and found a tombstone that had his name on it, but different years. And he went in and said, like, what's this? And they had a baby that they named his name that died, and that was the tombstone for that baby. So he was supposed to be the replacement. Now, before you get all judgmental, I've already done that for you. So, <laughs> so I'm going to save you from the guilt of that because that's what people do when they don't have adequate tools. It's not insensitive. It's inadequate. And we don't use inadequate often enough as a word that describes choices that people make because they don't know that it's not a good choice. So... Um, <clears throat> Pauline Boss, I'm going to quote her again. Ambiguous loss is the most stressful loss people can face. Not only does it disrupt their family by diminishing the number of its functioning members and requiring someone else to pick up the slack, but more uniquely the ambu ambiguity and uncertainty confuse family dynamics, forcing people to question their family and the role that they play in it. I don't quite know and didn't know what the family dynamics were in my family after my brother, the oldest, said, you're, you're out. And my other brother, while he was still alive, said, oh, that's just ridiculous. Listen, you need to go to him and make him feel better. Okay, now I have another go make them feel better story for you. Just so you can really hold on to this as we go through ambiguous loss. Um, when my dad died, we were all in my mom's home. Um, Joe and I were upstairs. I was folding diapers. And I heard a gunshot. And then it, I, I felt something hit my foot. And I thought, oh, I've been shot. So as one would do, I fell across the bed. <laughs> but as it turned out... The carpet stopped the bullet, and I hadn't been shot. But you know, my heart was going. And so I got up, and, and Joe, you weren't in the room. You ran up the stairs and said, are you all right? And I said, yeah, but look. 
And then right behind Joe is my mother who had, how old was she? 80-something. I don't know how she did it. And you know what she said to me? Carol accidentally shot off the gun in Dad's closet, and he feels worse than you do. You get down there and apologize to him. All right, now I want you to hear this. We as a family spent our life collectively trying to make up for the fact that Carol had polio and that Carol's didn't, life didn't work out in the same way that my other brother's life and my life worked out. And our whole family system had to make up for that because nobody knew how to grieve that when it happened. All emphasis was on, you're going to walk again. And he did. Like, he, he did pretty great, actually, until post-polio syndrome got him, too. But the, the whole thing is family systems organize themselves around this inability. And then everybody has to make up for something that they don't really know much about. I was five when Carol had polio, right? So I'm going to uh, talk about some examples, and then we'll take a break. Um, first of all, here's... Um, one, ambiguous loss. Am I married or not since my husband has been missing for decades? How do I answer how many children I have when I gave up one for adoption? Um, I'm reading other people's. But I worked with veterans for about five years, and I worked with so many veteran spouses who said to me, he left or she left this person, and they came back this person. And uh, one woman said to me, he might as well not be back. He has a headset. He plays video games with his people in his platoon all day, every day. That's his whole life. He's gone. So the question then is, how do you answer that? Like, how do you answer that? And I have a lot of questions about how our culture is going to grow in awareness and in appropriate response to some of these things. So some people have sent in questions to us, and I'm going to use three of them right now to teach for a little bit, and then we're going to take a little break. Here you go. My name is Wendy, and I'm a 43-year-old single, never married, too. What I often find about grieving is that it is very accepted to grieve things that happen, a loss of a loved one or a tragic event. When these things happen, we send flowers and make casseroles. It's much less common that we recognize or support the grieving of things that haven't happened. There is nothing I desire more than to be married, but day after day, year after year, when this doesn't happen, I grieve. It comes in waves, just like other grief I've experienced, and is overwhelming at times. It's not the loss in the traditional sense, but I'm still experiencing loss. This loss is that of not having someone to love and care for, and as a two, it is indeed a profound loss. Now, first of all, thank you, Wendy, because that's courageous. Secondly, let me say that those kinds of stories are hard to tell. 
Most of you may not hang out in churches as much as I do. But, uh, you know, singles groups are generally not for people who are 43. So there's a whole thing about where am I supposed to meet people or somebody? What am I supposed to do? And I think we probably all could nod that when you're looking for a relationship is when you can't find one. It's like it has to come looking for you if it's going to work, right? So um, this is uh, awkward for her, and it's uh, awkward for other people. And so I want to take a little of the energy off of that and talk about other things that are awkward. It's a problem when we assume that everybody who's single wants to be single, that everybody who's divorced wants to be divorced, that everybody who has children wants to have children, and that everybody who doesn't have children didn't want to have children. And we don't know how to talk about it. And so we talk about it the wrong way, or we try to talk about it and it doesn't work, and then we feel like we did the wrong thing. So I want you to silo those two stories, and I'm going to talk about this. Um, I had the gift of editing a 40-day series written by each of the nine Enneagram numbers, one book per number. In reading all of those, I learned a lot. Joel and I recorded a podcast with um, one of those authors, And he was telling a story about somebody who was across the coffee shop while he was working, and the person across the coffee shop kept looking at him because he looks different and uh, because he's Chinese. And finally, the guy waves, and he nods, and so the guy comes over. And he's a seven, so he kind of rolled his eyes about the guy coming over. But I called him on that and let him know for sure I would be the one who came over. Like, that's what, that's the stuff I do, right? So uh, then he said, the guy said, where are you from? And I told him I was from Canada because that's where I'm from. And so we kind of went on with that. And he talked about how it is challenging for him because he looks different when people ask him where he's from. So I said, what would you prefer that somebody like me, who's trying to be friendly with you, wants to connect to you? How do you want that connection to be made? And he said, he thought for a minute, and he said, well, I think the best thing you could say is tell me your story. So I said, okay, I'm taking that. That'll preach, right? So we can use tell me your story in relationship to ambiguous loss. But you can't do it from a place of now's a good time for me for you to tell me your story. You have to do it from a place of waiting and waiting. And then if there's a good time for you to say, if you ever want to talk about your story, I'd love to hear it we can have coffee. And then you've done what I talk about a lot. You've set the table for that to potentially happen. 
All right, Wendy, I'm going to come back and talk about this more when I talk about twos, but that's what I'm, I'm going to stop here for now. All right, here's the next one. My husband and I recently decided to stop pursuing fertility treatments after years of no success and news that anatomically it will be impossible for me to conceive. A lot of resources I've encountered on grieving are about death or the end of relationships. But for us in this situation, our grief is about something that will never happen. Could you talk about the nuance in that? Do you think it's the same or is it different? I'm a four and my husband is a five. Okay, I'm going to talk about that more in terms of four and five when I teach the numbers. But what I want to say right now is the number of people who are hoping to have a baby and who are able to gather enough resources to go through all of that treatment is overwhelming. And the thought that it's going to work for everybody is ignorance. And I think it's a place where there's shame and all kinds of stuff, all kinds of feelings that need to be worked through. And, you know, I'm uh, in a position where I get to say things because I'm not a pastor. But when I hear that pastors say to these human beings who are trying and suffering and who have dreamed about being parents and all of that, well, it must be God's will. I could go nuts. If Joe ever retires, then I I may just go on a, I don't know, across the country speaking tour about how could you? That's what I'm going to name it. How could you? Okay, all to say, I don't know if I know how to handle that either. But here's what I do know. We need to figure it out. So first of all, first step is we have to own, I don't know how to grieve, real expected loss when somebody who lived a long, full life dies. And then I don't know how to grieve any of these other things that follow that. And nobody's teaching us. Um, All right, one more. Thank you very much for the question. My husband, a three, and I, a nine, have had a 30-year marriage that may look perfect to the larger community, but it is fraught with trouble. He has had homosexual affairs on and off for our entire marriage. After many attempts at marital counseling and therapy, together and separately, I'm ready to quit being the peacemaker and find a separate life for myself. I do not believe my husband will ever be honest about his orientation. He desperately wants to remain closeted and married to me. We have two college-age sons, introverted four and five, who love their dad, me, and home. The older son probably suspects the truth about his parents' marriage, but has never exactly voiced it. 
The younger one seems unaware but has suffered bouts of anxiety and depression, being hospitalized for suicidal thoughts when he was 12. All right, now go back to what Miriam Greenspan said. Right? This is the result of all of these things that have not been grieved and a fear that has not been dealt with. It's, it's all connected. And then she says, here's my question. How do I bring more truth to the family system if my husband wants to keep his secret? Counselors have told me that it's not my place to out him. How best to handle this secret that everyone has struggled with and my husband refuses to name? I want my sons to be able to live healthy adult lives, beginning with seeing the truth of their family of origin. So, I have an answer, but it's not mine to give. And I want to. And I'm kind of all whipped up and got a lot to say. But when we are being respectful of circumstances of other people, we have to know our place. And my place in this conversation is not to answer that question. My place is to answer how to live with the question until it gets answered somewhere else, right? That's my role in all of this. And 20 years ago, I'd be going off, and Joe would be in the back of the room going, and I might have done it 10 years ago, and Joel and Laura would be in the front of the room going, I've got her muted, don't worry. (laughs) See, I think we have to be careful that we always ask the question, what is mine to do in relationship to loss and grieving, observed but not understood probably, right? So you want to know why you should read and read and read, because then you can give people books instead of answers. And uh, the book is, oh, Giuseppe, it's the purple book. I'll say it after the break. I can, you know, we call it the purple book. I bet we've given away 200. So I'll figure it out, and I'll do it right when we come back first thing. I'm sorry. All right, now I'm going to start after the break talking about the Enneagram. But this is the backdrop for all of it. And I don't have as many answers as I wish I had, but I do think I have good questions. And I think our opportunity to find our way in all of this will be only limited by the questions that we don't know to ask. If we know what questions to ask, then we can um, figure out, maybe, what we have to offer and what we don't have to offer and all that. Did you find it? Homosexuality and Christian faith. There are several authors involved. It's edited by Walter Wink. It's a way to start conversations that need to be had. That's what I would say. 
I would say this. It's not just his secret. By his rules, it has to be your secret. And that's damaging. And we should take a break. Can I ask you one question real quick before we go to break? Sure you can. Do you think aging involves grieving? Yes. You kidding? I grieve every night in the middle of the night. Hang on. (laughs) And first of all, let's back up. It's not my question. (laughs) So I apologize for Suzanne to the person online. Good Lord. Sorry. More ammunition for the therapist. I'm sorry. I just, aging is hard. It's really hard. And there's a lot to grieve. Got another one? You're going to let me save myself? Yeah, we're going to rebound. Good. If you you bark at me at this one. (laughs) Then what? Taking my ball and going home. Okay. If someone was adopted and then disowned by that family, how might one hold that compounded ambiguous loss? Do you grieve it separately or as one? Well, let me start with this. I, just me, do not like the language forever family. Because biological families frequently aren't forever families. And there's all this language around adoption where this child is going to have a forever family. Are you? I was adopted as soon as my mom and dad died. I didn't have a family, right? So um, I'm just saying, I I think we have to be, we're going to have to work from the outside and from the inside to solve everything that's happening. I think adoption boils down to not being wanted. And... I think Joe would agree that every time I am not wanted in a big way by a person or a group of people, anytime I, I'm rejected in a big way, and it doesn't happen often, but anytime it does happen, I'm right back to being adopted and not wanted, and then we're right back if I'm not on my game to, why do you want me? And then, I mean, it's just, then I make up stuff. You know, it just goes on and on and on and on. And so I I think it's the same wound made deeper by the second rejection. And the only thing I can say that um, compares to that in my life experience is that when I found my birth mother, she was very clear that she didn't want me then and she didn't want me now. And so I was all geared up for that, you know, because I made up that I'd always been wondering about her, and she was going to be so excited to to have me call, and she was not. So um, I I just think it's uh, all about the same wound of wanting to be wanted and not being wanted by the people whose job it was to want you. That's all I can say. I'm sorry. I'm just sorry. It's awful. Do you mind if we take one more? No, I'm good. All right. I mean, we're going to take a lot more just for the record for people that are online. But just one more right now, and then we'll get to a break and 
and we'll come back and we'll do more questions later and all the things and all the stuff. Do you believe that our inability to grieve is connected to our lack of emotional intelligence as a culture? Yes. I surely do. I've, I've seen uh, healthy grieving uh, up close once. And it was my mom. So we'll, we'll do this story and then we'll take a break. My mom and dad were married for 58 years and they were best friends. Um, Joe and I have worked really hard to have a marriage that's like theirs and we do. And um, when my dad died, my mom did pretty good. And then uh, we were together at, at Christmas time, and she seemed good. And I said, how are you doing? She said, you know, I'm okay. I said, well, gosh, I, I thought this would be so much harder for you because you and Daddy were so close. And, man, I'd have my face in the pillow screaming. And she said, what makes you think I don't do that? She said, but on the other hand, 58 years of getting to love him and be loved by him is a lot to celebrate. And so it's two things. It's screaming in the pillow, and it's real gratitude that I had what I had. And it seems to me that's some pretty good grieving for uh, three months in. So then she came down here to go on, on spring break with us to the coast. She uh, was very worried about me for numerous reasons once I became a pastor's wife. And they were warranted, I, f I feel sure. But the, the thing that she was on during this particular time was that I didn't have a tablecloth. She said, I, I don't know how you can possibly be a pastor's wife and have people here and not have a tablecloth. I don't, like, I don't understand that. So... Um, she came down a couple of days early and she got in the car and closed the door because we were going to get a tablecloth. And uh, she closed the door and she said, Suzanne. And she didn't usually call me Suzanne, so I said, yes, ma'am. And she said, I, I, I need to talk to you about something. And I said, okay. She said, well, the other night I was asleep in my bed and I woke up and I smelled your dad. And she said, I know he was there. He was there. Like, I know it was him. And she said, it wasn't a, just a whiff. I just kept on smelling it and smelling it. And then she said, now, every once in a while, I put a little bit of Daddy's cologne on my wrist right here. And then I just smell of it. But I try to only do it like every 10 days because I don't want to run out. And I hadn't done it in 10 days, so I know it was him. She said, what do you think about that? I said, well, I think that's possible. She said, you do? I said, yeah, sure I do. She said, well, what does Joe think? Does that let you know how much authority I have? <laughs> I said, well, I, I'm not sure why don't you talk to him, but I think he's going to tell you that he also agrees with that. So um, <clears throat> she talked to Joe about it, and he said, oh, I think that's highly possible. And he gave her a couple of books to read. And uh, we went on vacation and had a great time, and we came back, and then we, you know, life was life. And uh, a couple of weeks after we got back, I called her, maybe three weeks, and I said, well, has Daddy been back to see you? A little resentful that 
He hadn't been to see me. I said, has daddy been back to see you? She said, oh, he's visiting other people now. I thought, well, that can't be because it wasn't me. So, like, who, who's he visiting? She said, well, and my mom was legally blind by this point in her life, and she said, I'm supposed to have both bridge clubs this week, and I just can't do it without help, and Velma's sick. And Velma called and said, I, Sue, I just can't help you. I'm so sorry. I'm so sick. I can't come tomorrow. And Mom said, I just didn't know what I was going to do. And then the next morning, Velma called, and she said, I feel all better. I can come. And my mom had worked out with the driver's people so, to have her license. She told them exactly what streets she would go to the grocery store church and to pick up Vella May, and they sure did give her a license. <laughs> she said, my husband delivered you. I changed your diapers when you were a baby, and I want a driver's license. And he said, okay. So she went to get Vella May, and um, Vella May was pretty quiet. And my mom said, well, you're awful quiet. What's wrong? She said, well... I got to tell you something, last night I was so sick, and then all of a sudden, there was Dr. Guthrie right there at the foot of my bed. He had on his white shirt and his tie and everything, and he said, Velma, Sue needs you, and you're going to be okay in the morning. I want you to go to the medicine cabinet and do this, this, and this, and go to bed. You'll feel fine tomorrow. And she said, and I did, and I do. What do you think about that? And my mom said, well, Suzanne thinks it could happen. And Velma said... Well, what does Joe think? <laughs> now, that's good grieving. Right? That's really good grieving. It's not acting like everything's fine, or I've, I'm past it now, or I'm okay, or my mom would have said, in unhealthy grief, my mom would have said, I don't want to talk about it because I don't like to cry in front of other people. My mom was a five on the Enneagram. So I think there are a lot of stories of good grieving, but they don't get told, probably. All right, we're going to take a break. 